Um, we're looking at lessons from the life of J.C. Ryle this morning, but I want to just read a passage of scripture real quick to begin, and then I'll pray. And uh, hope Chris said he was coming this morning. Yeah, he normally comes. I don't know if he'll roll in here or not. Um, Maybe it's coming late, or it may be a couple away. Yeah. 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 We'll see. I know there's still a lot of people traveling and stuff as well. But um, I want to read from Ephesians chapter two. Very familiar passage. We're you know just preaching through all of this. Which, which word did you normally read from? ESV. Normally. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. So we'll look at Ephesians 2, and um, I'm just going to read verses 4 through 10. Verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me pray real quick. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for faithful men who have sought to proclaim and explain and preach your word through the centuries. We ask that as we look at the life of your servant, J.C. Ryle, that we would be encouraged and challenged and built up in our own faith today. Help his voice um, to speak to us, and uh, his life to be an inspiration. I pray that you would help all of us as men to be, first and foremost, not successful men or powerful men or wealthy men or famous men, but godly men. We pray that you would help uh, the example of our forefathers to, to move us along in this goal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, we're going to talk about J.C. Ryle, and I'm going to kind of look at a bit of his biography and things. I'm not assuming that everybody is familiar with him. And then some of the things that he went through in his life and lessons we can learn. Um, before I do that, though, I'm curious, have, have any of you had a chance to read some of Ryle, or is this kind of new territory? New for me. Okay, great. Um, he, um, Ryle is, is, is one of my favorite writers from the history of the church. And uh, what we'll do today, then, just to kind of orient us, this is good, because this is kind of a basic thing, is we'll look at Ryle's context, just kind of see what, you know, what he was um, facing in his, own, in his own time period, and then a bit about his career, just to see kind of um, what he did, some of the challenges he faced, and then finally his character and contributions. Um, so J.C. Ryle was a, um, a, a bishop in, in the 19th century in England, and so I, it's important to, um, to kind of see what all was going on in England, because he was very much a man of his times. Um, his dates are 1816 to 1900. So in England at the time, this is a real period of transition. Um, just the year before he's born, Napoleon is defeated at Waterloo, which means England, kind of right on the cusp of his birth, is transitioning into being the undisputed superpower of the age. There's no other country in the world 
that's as powerful or as wealthy or as influential as England. That's the world that, that Ryle is born into. And, and you can even think of uh, Queen Victoria, the Victorian era. She's born just a couple years after Ryle, 1819, and she dies in 1901. So their lives are kind of um, overlaid with each other. He would have been a contemporary of people like Spurgeon. Um, and so Ryle's context is one in which Britain and England in particular is really growing in terms of military power and wealth and influence. Um, and yet it's also a time of great change and challenge. You know, industrialization is taking place. People are moving from villages and cities where they've lived for hundreds and hundreds of years into big towns like London and Liverpool and Manchester. And people are giving up the farming work that's been in there family for generations to work in factories and things. So there's a lot of turmoil, right? You think about Dickens and all the things he writes about. That was that was day-to-day -day reality for someone like like Ryle. Hey, Chris. Um, so in England, there's a, there's a lot going on that he has to face, and not just him, but the church. So uh, part of his context is not just England in general, but the Church of England. Uh, now we're used to, you know, in the American context, you have lots of different denominations. Um, lots of different church groups and things. And in England at the time, there were different groups. You had Baptists and you had some Presbyterians and things. But you have an established church, which means the government pays for and promotes the Church of England, the Anglican Church. And uh, so the vast majority of people and of Christians in England are part of the Church of England. Um, but of course, with that, you get a lot of breadth in the Church of England. And in the 19th century, the Anglican Church was actually beginning to fracture even more um, strongly than it had been in the past. When, when the Anglican Church was established, it kind of went through some identity crises and battles for different reasons. Um, but by and large, it was a Reformation church overall. Um, but in the 19th century, that's very much beginning to fracture. And so you have kind of three different groups in the Church of England. You have the Low Church Anglicans, who would be much more evangelical, would feel very familiar to us. They're going to emphasize personal life and experience, the Bible, the heritage of the Reformation, that kind of thing. In contrast to that, you have the high church Anglicans, who really are wanting to move the Church of England back closer to Roman Catholicism in terms of its worship and its liturgy and even some of its doctrine. We'll look at a bit more at that later. Um, but then you also have the broad um, kind of branch of the Church of England, and they were called that because they were much more open to kind of the new liberal ideas about the scriptures and, and theology and things that were coming over from Germany. So Ryle's context is one of a lot of turmoil and change. Um, what about his career, Ryle's career? Well, he was born in 1816, as we already said, and born into a very wealthy family. His father was in banking, was a member of parliament, um, and uh, as, as everyone would have been at this time, he was brought up in the Church of England, but was not really a Christian. His parents were not really Christians. It was very much a nominal faith. You know, you go to church, you're baptized, you go through the motions, but this is not driving their, their life and faith. Um, interestingly enough, some of his grandparents had been converted quite radically in some of the revivals a generation or two earlier, but by the time Ryle comes along, that has kind of fizzled out in his family. Um, he received very good education. He went to Eton and then on to Oxford. If you're familiar with kind of the, the British system, Eton is the go-to school. You know, all of the wealthy, you know, and royalty will send their, their boys there to go on to be educated at Oxford or Cambridge. 
and he really excelled there, not just in academics, but he was a he was a big man, he was very strong and very athletic. He was captain of a number of sports teams and things and um, really kind of learned a lot of lessons of leadership, honestly, playing sports, and uh, but also really excelled in terms of scholarship. He studied classics, uh, he mastered Latin and Greek, he knew um, classical culture very well, science, mathematics, just studied a whole range of things. And he really seemed to be set up for a very productive, famous, well-to-do life. His goal was to be a member of parliament, to follow his father into politics and make his mark on the nation at a time when it's the most powerful nation in the world. However, two things happened that changed his direction. The first is, in his final, towards the end of his, of his college uh, uh, training at Oxford, Ryle is converted. And the way this comes about is that he, um, he comes down with a really severe sickness and he's in bed for a number of weeks trying to recover from this sickness and begins to read the Bible and begins to think a bit more about spiritual things and about life and eternity. Of course, in the 19th century, you know, we go to bed with a cold or a sickness and we just assume we'll get better. That was not an assumption you could make in Victorian England. Right? It was common for even healthy young men to be struck down. The Ryle was forced to kind of look into the reality of eternity. Um, he began to recover, though, and so he starts going back to his classes and things, and he's in chapel one day there at, um, at Christ Church in Oxford, and someone was reading through the scriptures for that service. And the passage they read was what we read this morning, Ephesians 2. And when the reader came to Ephesians 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, if it's not of yourself, Ryle was just gripped by that verse and immediately converted there was no sermon on the verse. There was no teaching or explanation. It was just the way that verse was read grabbed him, and he became a Christian. That happened in 1837, and Ryle went from that nominal Christianity to a real vibrant Christianity. But he did not say, I'm giving up politics. I'm going to be a pastor and jump into ministry. He still wanted to be a politician. He still wanted to go to parliament and make his mark on the nation. But then the second big thing happened in his life. His father's business completely fell apart. It turned out that his, his dad had been trying to make some deals and kind of work things out, and there had been some dishonesty and things, and the whole bank that he was part of and all of their fortune was lost overnight. Pop, or, uh, um, Ryle said, he wrote a little autobiography, and he said, we, we woke up as kings, we went to bed as paupers. It was literally in the course of one day that they lost all, everything. And for Ryle, this was a big deal for two reasons. First was... Um, his family name was now tarnished. And we can kind of understand that, but put yourself back in Victorian England and really think about what that means. Uh, this is very much something where your family's actions reflect on you. And if you want to be a public figure, to be tied to something as scandalous and destructive as what had gone on would be a real um, hurt to him in any career, much less in politics. The other consequence was that he had lost all his fortune. Now that would be bad enough, but you have to remember that in Victorian England, members of parliament are not paid. This is a way of keeping um, the upper classes in some sense in, in, in power because you have to be basically independently wealthy in order to be a member of parliament. So now his career is dead before it's even started. And Ryle, 1841, is having to look at how he can make it through life 
and where he's supposed to go from here. And so he ends up going into the church. And he says, I did, I did not feel a call to the ministry. I didn't have an interest in the ministry, but this was an open door. It's an established church context. Mm-hmm. So generally, um, you can get a post if you're well-connected, mm-hmm. if you have family, mm-hmm. friends. And uh, oftentimes, men go into ministry not because they have a call to ministry, but it, it pays the bills. It has some social respect and standing. And um, it can give you a lot of leisure time as well. A lot of these pastors would, um, you know, in the 19th century, you find a lot of these Anglican pastors who spend hours and hours and hours studying geology or botany or history or whatever, and then they show up on Sunday, preach a little homily, go through the liturgy that they're given, and they're gone the rest of the week. So in some ways, it could be kind of a comfortable post. Um, But Ryle was surprised to learn that he actually loved ministry and was actually quite good at it. And he was uh, placed in a number of small churches um, that were in very poor areas, and he saw the needs of the people, both physically and spiritually. He actually, in his first parish, kind of worked not only as a pastor, but also as a doctor, not because he had a lot of medical training, but he just saw the great need that people had and wanted to step in and help them. And so, even though he was kind of pushed into ministry against his will almost, Within a couple of years, he found that this is exactly what he was made for, and uh, he really began to thrive in that ministry. He served in a number of different churches and um, was eventually moved um, in Winchester and Suffolk, different places, but um, served for a good number of years. From 1841 to about 1880, he served churches all over the south of England, mostly in rural context, and he got placed in some larger rural churches at the time, and really began to hone his skills as a preacher, as a theologian, as a teacher. It was in some of those early churches that Ryle, who was already an evangelical Christian, already kind of part of that low church branch of the Church of England, he really began to pour himself into reading the Reformers and the Puritans. And he found in those two sources um, just a wealth of rich, vibrant piety and theology that he began to kind of translate and communicate Mm -hmm. into his own day. And so Ryle was really growing into being uh, a person of influence and of leadership. And during the 1840s and 50s and 60s, he started to speak a bit more at conferences and conventions and things. He began to write um, more and more. Um, Ryle was a great writer of tracts. Um, he liked to say that he was following in the steps of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul wrote tracts to the churches, and Ryle says, I'm going to write tracts to the churches. And so he would address a whole range of topics. Sometimes it was basic things like, how do you pray as a Christian? How do you know if you're converted? You know, what, what does it look like to, to read your Bible carefully and well? Um, but he was also beginning to write tracts addressing some of the different controversies that were going on in the day. We'll talk about what some of those were uh, in a moment. But Ryle began to establish himself as one of the leaders in the evangelical party of the Church of England um, and became more and more well-known. Um, So after many, many years in the ministry, 30, 40 years, he had pastored a number of churches. He's 64 years old, 1880. This is a time when many people in our own day even would be thinking about retirement. In Victorian England, you definitely should be thinking about retirement, right? 64 years old. But instead, Ryle goes on to be the Bishop of Liverpool. Now, this is an interesting story because um, Ryle was actually the very first Bishop of Liverpool. Liverpool... Um, at this point had become really the second city of the empire. London is the big economic, cultural, political hub, but Liverpool has really exploded and uh, become very large, very prosperous. All the ships are made there, all the ships ship out of there, the Titanic sailed 
from Liverpool. Um, but even though this city had become very powerful and very wealthy, it didn't have a bishop. And because this is an established church context, right, the, the, uh, the powers that be say, well, we, if this is going to be a, a prominent city, it needs to have a cathedral and needs to have a bishop. Uh, and um, the prime minister at the time um, was supposed to appoint that bishop, uh, the first bishop of Liverpool. Um, and he picked Ryle, not because he loved Ryle, not because he loved the evangelical reformed faith, um, but because he was on his way out and the guy who was coming in really hated Ryle. And so he thought, well, fine, I'm going to pick J.C. Ryle to be the first bishop of Liverpool. And he can't, won't have anything to say about it. And so Ryle, at 64 years old, moves to Liverpool, this massive city, and begins the work of establishing um, and strengthening the church there. Um, ordinarily, what would have happened, if it had been any other bishop probably, is they would have started a massive building project, poured tons and tons of money into cathedral, and tried to kind of build up the ecclesiastical prestige of the city. That's not what Ryle does. Ryle pulls together a team of uh, lay, lay people, uh, diaconal work, um, pastors, and goes about the work of evangelizing the city, um, meeting the needs of the poor, um, establishing mission halls, kind of almost church plants in a sense, and has a very fruitful ministry for about 20 years, from 1880 to 1900. He serves as the Bishop of Liverpool, continues to preach, continues to teach, continues to write, continues to kind of be a leader of the evangelical party, and really brings a lot of strength and vibrancy to Liverpool. And Liverpool is an interesting place as well. This is something of an aside, but um, if you've ever been, I love, I used to live in England and I love kind of looking at the different accents everybody has and things. If you've ever been to Liverpool or heard a Liverpool accent, it's completely unlike anything else on the planet. And you can even go to little cities just outside of Liverpool and they talk completely differently than they do in Liverpool. Why is that? Well, it's because Liverpool was the port of entry for all of the immigrants coming over from Ireland. And so you have this Irish accent combining with the Lancashire, Cheshire, Yorkshire accents to combine this, this weird thing they call Scouse, is what they call a Liverpool accent. Um, but what that meant for Ryle is that you have tons of Roman Catholics coming in to your city. It's not just kind of nominal Church of England things. And so he's trying to reach out to Roman Catholics, reach out to Church of England, um, a lot going on. But he has a very fruitful ministry, steps down as the bishop as he's approaching his 83rd year, and a couple months later um, goes to be with the Lord. So Ryle has a very long career, a very fruitful career. Um, but what were some of his challenges? What were some of the things he had to face in his life? Well, he had a lot of difficulties, uh, many personal sorrows. We've already talked about the collapse of his family, of the reputation, the death of his original dream and goal of being member of parliament. But um, he also had a lot of trouble in, in his own family life. Um, he was married three times, um, and each of his wives died before he did. Uh, the first time he was married, uh, he was married for, I think, only two or three years. His wife got sick, passed away. His second wife... Um, lived uh, a little bit longer, but not much. He had to bury her as well. And his third wife, they were married for a good number of years, but she died uh, the year or two before, before he did. And so he had to face that, um, that loss and that sorrow over and over again. Um, just think about putting yourself in those shoes of, of, of burying three wives. Um, but probably, his, probably the greatest challenge um, to his faith, the greatest sorrow that he faced um, actually came from his son, 
uh, Herbert was, I think, the second oldest. Uh, he had four or five kids. And Herbert was his favorite son. He was very bright, um, very ambitious, seemed to really be drawn to the ministry of the church, actually, and came to work with his father in Liverpool, ministering to people there. And it seemed like here's a son who's kind of following in his footsteps. But Herbert um, came to be very influenced and accepting of liberalism that was coming in from Germany. He began to doubt the historicity of the Bible, the resurrection of Christ, you know, all of these kinds of central doctrines. And so Ryle had to actually remove him from ministry there in Liverpool. And Herbert went on to have a very successful career from a kind of worldly perspective. He was the Dean of Westminster, and um, I think he was Bishop of Winchester. But, you know, holding very high positions, lots of prestige, lots of influence, lots of money even at the time, but at the cost of an evangelical faith. And he and Ryle had to navigate what their relationship looked like and, uh, and just deal with the, 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 the turning away from the faith of, of your favorite son. So he had many challenges in his own um, personal and family life. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, he also had a lot of public conflicts. Um, and, in fact, uh, p- part of why Ryle would have been well-known in his own day, we kind of know him for his devotional writings and... Um, very helpful commentaries on scripture and things. I'll talk about some of those in a moment. But in his day, if you had mentioned Ryle, people would have known him um, because every time there's a controversy that erupts in the Church of England, every time there's a a point of debate or issue between these low, high, and broad church groups, um, Ryle's pen springs to action and he'll, um, you know, write off a tract and send it out. And um, very widely read, very widely published, um, but he had to, to fight against a lot of, of things that were coming into the Church of England and trying to redirect it in different ways. I'll mention just a couple of those. So one of those are um, what's called the Oxford Movement. The 19th century uh, Anglican Church um, was, as I said, a church kind of working through its identity in many ways. And, and the high church branch really grew out of the Oxford Movement, which was a group of young men, pastors, who were in Oxford being trained, and they said really the the Anglican Church got off on the wrong foot when it followed the path of the Reformation. We should have stayed closer to the pattern of the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, we should have done away with some of the moral abuses that were going on at the Reformation, um, you know, priests extorting money and having kids out of wedlock, and you know, that was fine to get rid of that, but we shouldn't have moved away from um, you know, the mass and baptismal regeneration and, you know, all these other things. And so the Oxford movement was uh, a movement to move the Anglican Church back to more of a Roman Catholic orientation. Uh, and if you've seen Anglicanism today, it's a very diverse, broad movement, so it can, you can find whatever you want in the Anglican Church. Um, but kind of our picture is probably more, you walk in and you think, okay, I don't know if I'm in a Roman Catholic cathedral or if I'm in an Anglican church. That would not have been the case in 1800. Uh, most Anglican churches would have been fairly plain. Preaching would have been fairly straightforward. It would have felt more evangelical overall. Um, but the Oxford movement really transformed in many ways the liturgy and the look and the feel of um, Anglican churches and in, in, in a lot of ways introduced new theologies that moved it back to Roman Catholicism. Ryle was fiercely opposed to all of these things. He really wanted to stress the importance of an evangelical personal faith, the importance of our Reformation roots and theology and things. And so he was an opponent of the Oxford movement. 
Um, you also have liberalism, as you see even with his own son, right? Many people who were brought up in good churches um, moving away from that as uh, these competing ideas come into play. Ryle has to, to write against those things. Um, but it's not just kind of big isms that he's fighting against. One of the biggest challenges for an Anglican pastor in the 19th century, and probably for many pastors in many contexts, is cultural Christianity. People who think, I'm an Englishman, I was baptized here, I, I've grown up here, so therefore I'm a Christian. And Ryle's, I think some of his best writings are when he's trying to poke a hole in that way of thinking and get people to really recognize their relationship with Christ matters. And they can't just lean back on their nationality or their church background or their family. They have to have union with Christ and communion with Christ. And how do we grow in that? And so Ryle um, was engaged in many of those things. But that made him in many ways an unpopular uh, person for, for many of those who were in power and in, in influence. Um, but I think there are many lessons we can learn from Ryle. And I want to just mention three here. Uh, and then I want to share a few quotes from Ryle. I've got some copies here I can give you. Um, but as I wrestled with kind of, you know, what do you draw away from Ryle's life, there's a lot of things. He wrote a ton of books. All of them are worth reading, I think. Um, I've not read all of them. I've read, I've read some, though. Um, but one of the things that strikes me about Ryle, and you'll see this when we come to his quotes, is that he was able to achieve profundity through simplicity profundity through simplicity. Um, one of the things that's striking about Ryle is that he is really, really readable. He's a joy to read. Even now, 150 years later, you can pick him up and he has a kind of C.S. Lewis ability to just put, turn a phrase well and communicate ideas very, very clearly. Um, I'm a church history guy. I love reading writers from the past. And um, But, you know, you, you read some and they're great theologians. You can see it's a great mind at work, but man, sometimes you have to labor through their language to try to see, what are you saying here? You never do that with Ryle. He just puts things very clearly. And he did that very intentionally. When he first stepped into the ministry, he did what most Anglican preachers did. He was educated at Oxford. He knew the languages. He knew classical culture. He was very well versed in all these things. And most Anglican sermons looked like the pastor coming, standing up on Sunday, giving a homily that's really kind of an intellectual exploration of some topic. It's almost an essay of sorts. They'll have long quotations from the Greek and from the Latin in their sermon as they're preaching to farmers and tradesmen who can't even read English, much less Latin. That's very typical in Anglican sermons. And the goal is kind of present something beautiful that impresses people with learning, and, and, uh, but you're not really looking to help them in their walk with Christ. That's not so much the goal. Ryle recognizes he's working in these rural parishes if I'm going to communicate with the farmer, if I'm going to communicate with the tradesman, if I'm going to communicate with the guy who, who can't even read English, much less these other uh, languages and things, I have to be plain. And he has a wonderful little pamphlet called Simplicity in Preaching. And if you do any preaching or teaching or any, even any writing, it's well worth reading. And he talks about you have to have short sentences. You have to use strong words. You have to use simple words. Don't go for the big word. The big word is not the better word. Go for the small word that gets the idea across. Use concrete, tangible language. You know, that gives you power. I think you really see this, uh, both because of how popular his writings were, um, but also how his ministry, his preaching was received. There was a story once of, a, of an older woman who came to the, the cathedral in Liverpool, and she wanted to hear the bishop preach. She wanted to hear the bishop preach. And she sat there, and she heard Bishop Ryle preach. 
And um, as she was walking out, one of her friends asked her, what did you think of the bishop's preaching? She said, there's no way he's a bishop. She's like, I understood every word he said. And that's just kind of, you know, the, the context. You would not have gotten it. It was more for the flavor of things, but Ryle got through because he tried to be simple. I think that's something, especially for probably seminary students, to learn. Um, another lesson, I think, is that Ryle achieved relevance through recovery. Uh, one of the things that's striking is he's very much a man of his times. He's engaged in the debates of the day. He's trying to help the poor who are being displaced by all the changes of industrialization and things. He's a very 19th century Victorian man. And yet, Ryle was deeply steeped in the theology and the life and the piety of his forefathers. The Reformers and the Puritans were people that he read every single day. And actually, in his own day, many of the Puritans had gone out of print, and he and Spurgeon and some others worked to kind of recover their writings and republish them and encourage people to read them and things. Ryle wrote a number of historical books. He wrote one called Light from Old Paths, and he wrote another one um, on five English reformers, going back to men like Cranmer and others and saying, we need to learn from these men. And I think what you see there is a really healthy um, balance of appreciation for the past without trying to replicate the past. Ryle does not look or live like John Owen, right? Different context, different culture, but he takes the theology that's there, the piety that's there, the things that are good, brings it to bear in his own time. And that's part of why I think um, what you find with Ryle, Ryle was certainly a well-known leader of the evangelical party in England, but he was not the most well-known. But most of us have never heard of the other guys who were probably more influential on that day. But many, many people read and have heard of Ryle because his, his writings are not so caught up in the controversies of his day that they don't have a relevance to someone like us. None of us are Anglican. None of us are Englishmen. So you start reading some of these debates and it's kind of inside baseball, but you hear someone talk about, how do you pray? What does it look like to meditate on the Bible? How do I know if I'm converted? Well, those are eternal questions that every person um, really should be wrestling with. And Ryle speaks to those things very well. And then the last thing, and this really flows out of what we've already said, is he was able to achieve clarity through conflict. He didn't allow the conflicts of his day to govern and control him, but he used them as an opportunity to clearly preach the gospel and clearly draw people back to the main and plain things of the Bible. Um, so that's a little bit of a, a taste of J.C. Ryle, a bit of his context, his career, his challenges, and his contributions. I want to end just by reading some quotes from J.C. Ryle, and I've got just a, a page of them, because um, I think the best way to get Ryle is to read him. He's, he's so wonderful to read. So I invite you to take one of these, and I'm just going to read through some of these. Uh, these are all taken from various works and sermons and things. Um, but here, here's the first one. Ryle says, Take advice this day. Search your own heart and see whether the fault is not entirely your own. Very likely you are sitting at ease, content with a little faith and a little repentance, a little grace and a little sanctification, and unconsciously shrinking back from extremes. You will never be a very happy Christian at this rate, even if you live to the age of Methuselah. Change your plan." if you love life and would see good days without delay. Come out boldly and act decidedly. Be thorough, thorough, very thorough in your Christianity and set your face fully towards the sun. 
Lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily overtake you. Strive to get nearer to Christ, to abide in Him, to cleave to Him, to sit at His feet like Mary, and drink full portions out of the fountain of life. Another Another one. Happy indeed is that church whose members not only desire to reach heaven themselves, but desire also to take others with them. Here's a very good one. Whatever you do for God, do it with all your heart and mind and strength. In other things, be moderate and dread running into extremes. But in soul matters, fear moderation just as you would fear the plague. Here's a very convicting one. This is one worth meditating on. No man was ever sorry that he served the Lord. No man ever said at the end of his days, ah, I've read too much. I've read my Bible too much. I've thought of God too much. I've prayed too much. I've been too concerned about my soul. Oh no. The people of God would always say, Had I my life over again, I would walk far more closely with God than ever I have done. I'm sorry that I've not served God better, but I'm not sorry that I've served Him. The way of Christ may have its cross, but it is a way of pleasantness and a path of peace. Let no man ever delude you into supposing that you can be happy in this world without repentance. Oh no, you may laugh and dance and go upon vacations and crack good jokes and sing good songs and say, cheer boys, cheer, and there's a good time coming. But all this is no proof that you're happy. So long as you do not quarrel with sin, you will never be a truly happy man. Just as an opium eater needs larger and larger doses, so does the man who seeks happiness in anything except in God need greater excitement every year that he lives, and after all is never really happy. Believe me, you cannot stand still in your souls. Habits of good or evil are daily strengthening in your hearts. Every day, you're either getting nearer to God or further off. Every year that you continue unrepentant, the wall of division between you and heaven becomes higher and thicker and the gulf to be crossed deeper and broader. Oh, dread the hardening effect of constant lingering in sin. This, is one, this final one is one that I've, I've often returned to. It's been a good challenge and encouragement. You may be very sure people fall in private long before they fall in public. They're backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. Like Peter, they first disregard the Lord's warning to watch and pray. And then, like Peter, their strength is gone. In the hour of temptation, they deny their Lord. The world takes notice of their fall and scoffs loudly, but the world knows nothing of the real reason. So these are un- undoctored, unedited quotes from a 150-year-old writer but I hope you see what I mean and why I love Ryle so much. And here's another beautiful thing. Um, all of these works are in the public domain now. So if you get on Monarchism, if you get on Kindle, I, I bought the complete works index of J.C. Ryle, you know, well formatted in Kindle for, I think, $9. That's um, well worth your money, well worth your time. Uh, he, he's, he's quick and easy to read. He has a lot of his books either are tracks or grew out of tracks. You can often get them in kind of short chunks and bites. Um, let me give you a few recommendations. Um, he has a book called Thoughts for Young Men. Very good for not just young men, but all, all of us as men um, to be reading and, and to work through. Uh, one of his most famous books is a book called Holiness. Um, if you really want to grow in your faith, Ryle will help you. 
Holiness is a great book um, to read. One that my wife and I just finished going through. He he wrote, actually this is kind of the first big thing that he wrote that, that made him uh, more well known. Um, he wrote a, a seven volume expository thoughts on the Gospels. And what he does is he goes through the whole of, of all four Gospels, takes just a section at a time, and then writes four or five pages that will pull out two or three things you know, from that text. And it's not a commentary per se, um, and it's not sermons per se, but he wrote it with an eye toward, it, he, he said, I'm writing this for you know, the farmer who comes home at night and wants to lead his family into the word of God, but he doesn't know how to do that or what to say. Or, so here are some expository thoughts on the gospel that can help to get you thinking, to help you to understand what's going on in this text and things. Very good devotional reading. We did that, went through the Gospel of Mark and just read the passage and read Ryle. Talked about it, prayed and sang, and that was it. Very easy for men to lead. Uh, if you struggle with leading a family worship, Ryle may be a good friend, a good guide. All told, we would read the passage, read Ryle, um, pray and sing, and that would take us about 10 to 15 minutes for family worship. So I, if, you, if you don't have a pattern, that may be something worth starting. You can get that in a four-volume Baker put out years ago, and Banner of Truth actually just republished that in its original seven-volume um, printing. But very, very good things. Um, so th there's a lot there for us to learn um, from Ryle, and I hope that whets your appetite. If you've not read Ryle or heard of him, or even if you have, maybe you've heard the name, but you haven't dug in, he's well worth um, reading and learning about. Um, let me give two other book recommendations because I'm a book guy. Um, if you want to get more into the life of Ryle, um, there's actually not much that's been written. So he, so he and Spurgeon were friends. They were contemporaries. Spurgeon called Ryle uh, the, 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 the bravest and best of men. Um, and the, the year that Spurgeon died, um, something like 18 biographies were published of Spurgeon you know, right away. Um, and the hundred and some years since Ryle has died, I think there's been about six biographies. And uh, most of them are of middling quality. Probably the two best biographies are um, one that Ian Murray wrote in 2016. He wrote it for the 200th anniversary of Ryle's birth. And it's called Prepared to Stand Alone. And uh, he kind of gives an overview of the life of Ryle, talks about his relationship with the Puritans and love of them, and then specifically talks more about how he dealt with his son and his son leaving the faith. So that's a very good kind of short one. Uh, prepared to Stand Alone, put out by Banner of Truth. And then just this year, um, Reformation Heritage Books published a um, what is probably the best modern biography of Ryle. It really tries to not just kind of do... I've given you, you know, a lot of the good things of Ryle, um, but you know, if you want to really deal with Ryle as a thinker, as a theologian, at his own life and things, um, I can't remember his first. I think it's Roger Bennett is the guy who wrote the book, and it's called um, the Tender Lion, I think, the Tender Lion, the Tender Hearted Lion, or something. Um, Ryle had a lot of different names given to him. It's called the Frank and Manly Mr. Ryle. Um, his successor called him that that man of granite with the heart of a child. And you get that oftentimes, that he's kind of described as this hard, tough, strong man, but gentle and loving as well. And he married those things uh, nicely together. But I, I, I think Ryle is, is um, especially if you're not, haven't done a lot of reading in church history and things from the past, he's one of the most accessible and really a very interesting guy. And I think a lot we can learn. Um, 
So thank you for indulging me in my love for Ryle. I hope it sparked uh, an interest in you as well. Um, I want to give time uh, for us to pray now as well. I encourage you to take this list of quotes and and uh, and uh, read through them and 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 find things of Ryle uh, for yourself in his writings. But uh, any comments or or questions before we go to a time of prayer? You might want to get that electronically. It's probably cheaper. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I will say for Ryle, and you probably found this if you try to get other public domain books, is always read in the comments and see what people say about the formatting. Because sometimes you have great content that's been horribly uh, uploaded. So dig for that one that has a real index and is properly formatted. But it it will bless your soul. I really think you'll be helped by Ryle. Well, let's.